Hello, everyone, and welcome to RQM Plus Live number 70, IVDR Class D Devices, Advanced Strategies for Succeeding in a Dynamic Regulatory Environment. My name is Stephen Bernacki, and I'm Marketing Principal at RQM Plus, and I'm going to start today by sharing just a smidge about RQM Plus and how we help our clients, and then I'll briefly introduce today's panelists. So RQM Plus is the world's leading medtech service provider, offering consulting, clinical trial, lab, and reimbursement services, as well as technology solutions to support the entire product lifecycle for medical devices, digital therapeutics, and diagnostics. RQM Plus Live is our recurring show in the style of a panel discussion that covers timely topics, challenges, and tries to provide solutions pertaining to the medtech industry. So it's all, and it's also the perfect opportunity for you to ask our um, seasoned industry leaders questions. So you can ask questions pretty easily. Just type them into the questions area of the GoToWebinar interface and click Submit. So on to today's panelists. Uh, first up is Margot Borgel, Director of IVD Intelligence and Innovation at RQM Plus. Margot helps our clients in lots of ways, uh, but primarily with IVDR implementation and notified body requirements. Uh, prior to RQM Plus, Margot was a technical specialist at BSI where she performed technical reviews for IVDR, IVDD, and UKCA certification. Um, she's especially passionate about certification of high-risk devices, uh, so she's found herself in the right place today and enjoyed seeing those devices through IVDR certification while she was at BSI. Next up is Bethany Chung, Principal Regulatory Scientist at RQM+. Bethany has a PhD in Biomedical Engineering and loves all things quantitative. She has more than 10 years of experience with medical devices and diagnostic software in the clinical space. Prior to joining the regulatory world, she was a clinical researcher specializing in ML and AI-based devices and diagnostics, and she's currently in the clinical and post-market practice at RQM+. Third, we have Lindsay Wright, Senior Consultant and Capability Manager at RQM+. Lindsay has over 14 years of experience in the biotechnology, medical device, and in vitro diagnostic industries. Uh, prior to joining RQM Plus, Lindsay worked on product and analytical development of CMC documentation at a cellular therapy company for over nine years. Uh, since joining RQM Plus, she's worked with a variety of clients on their clinical documentation, focusing both on MDR and IVDR products. Our fourth and final panelist is also serving as our moderator today, and that person is Nancy Morrison, Vice President of Intelligence and Innovation. Nancy has RAC certifications for the US and EU. She's led our MDR and IVDR leadership councils and has more than 30 years of experience in regulatory leadership and management roles. So without further delay, Nancy, you are free to get us going. All right, thank you, Steve. And anybody that's listened to me on these live shows knows I love regulatory challenges. And that's what we're gonna cover today is really those highest risk class D devices under the IVDR. So. A lot of changes happened, IVDR is in process, people have submitted, some people are pending their submissions because they are just not quite ready. Um, so today I'm excited to moderate this panel that'll give you some good insights that will help you take that next step. Um, so with that, I just wanted to get the conversation going and maybe Lindsay, you could just help us out and talk about what's in scope for today's discussion. Yes, of course. Thanks, Nancy. So today our focus is on Class Ds under the IVDR. These are our highest risk devices and include those devices that detect transmissible agents in the blood and tissue supply in order to assess suitability for transplant, transfusion, or cell administ administration, 
um, devices that detect transmissible agents that cause life-threatening illness and have a high risk of propagation, devices used for determining blood compatibility, and devices used on the highest risk blood groups for transfusion and transplant. So there are some differences here between the IVDD and the IVDR. Uh, some of these devices were self-certified under the IVDD and now have the lovely distinction of being in the highest classification. These include public health risks such as SARS-CoV-2 and arboviruses. Some devices were list A under the IVDD, so they are still considered high-risk devices, and these include HIV, HTLV, and blood grouping devices. Thanks, Lindsay. That's great. So what's different about these Class D devices? Bethany, you want to get us started on that conversation? Sure. Um, so, of course, with highest risk comes highest scrutiny, right? Um, so under the IVDR, all of these Class D devices are going to need to undergo technical documentation review from a notified body. Um, so this is actually going to be a big change for um, those devices that were upclassed from maybe self-certification under the IVDD. They're now, you know, need notified body scrutiny, need um, a whole load of other scrutiny as Class Ds under the IVDR. Um, so in addition to a notified body technical documentation review, um, when it comes to performance testing, your IVD will need to comply with the applicable common specifications. Um, now, these common specifications, there are some that have been published already. Um, there are some still pending. Um, but these specifications um, really outline both the methodology and the acceptance criteria for your testing um, and the performance that it, it needs in order to comply uh, with the IVDR. So, Verification of um, both common specifications and any other performance claims will need to happen by an EU reference lab when they're established, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, and so this performance will need to be established at the time of certification. Once it's certified, um, Class Ds will also need to submit to continued batch testing by these EU reference labs. Um, so they'll have, you know, testing both at the time of certification, testing continuously as these are being released onto the market. And then in the post-market phase, um, there's also increased scrutiny to be sure that the performance and the safety is maintained throughout the life of the IVD. Um, so in terms of regulatory requirements, this looks like um, a performance evaluation report update annually. It also, um, along with that, you're gonna be updating um, the SSP. So that's uh, the summary of safety and performance. And you'll need to update your PCER or post-market surveillance update report. Um, and that is going to be not only updated annually, but also submitted to the notified body annually. Um, and I believe with the show notes, um, I forgot to check with Steve on this, there is a handout available um, that sort of outlines all of this as well. Um, but basically, you know, increased risk, increased scrutiny, um, but there is, you know, a prescriptive methodology of what you'll need to go through, in theory, for the IVDR once everything is in place. So we have a question from the audience already. 
obviously you, you started out with common specifications. And the question is, do we have any template examples on the common specifications? So how would we tackle those where there is a, a common spec? Yeah, so um, if you have a device that was certified under IVDD, um, the common specifications are almost the same as the common technical specifications that were used under IVDD. Um, so what you've prepared for your CTS requirements can definitely be used to support common specification requirements. Um, if you're looking at devices that have been added that did not previously have a common technical specification, um, it is a little bit more difficult. Um, some of the notified bodies do have their own kind of forms that they ask manufacturers to fill out or you, where you'll have the common specification. You know, you'll tell them how you're meeting the requirement, what your references are for that, um, and where, you know, it can be found or if it's not applicable, you can explain why. Um, so if you have a notified body, reach out to them to see if they have already have a format for you to use. That's the easiest thing to just leverage what they've already provide, what they've already made and are using. Um, does that? I hope that answers the question. Yeah, I think that that covers it, right? <laughs> so you can leverage what you've done, or you can start new if it's new. But right, the notified body probably has some resources that will guide you into how to put that together. Yeah. And then I'm guessing, Marco, you could also help us put one of those Absolutely. together. <laughs> and Bethany and Lindsay as well. Uh, yeah, I thought you know, so. Help you, help you figure out whether or not your testing meets the requirements, you know, if there's gaps, what those gaps are and how we can fill them. Um, we've definitely done that before and can help with those sorts of questions. Yeah, and as they're published, you know, it's published in a summarized table form what the specifications are. Um, so I think the best practice is just, just take it systematically. Like this is everything that the published common specifications say should apply to my device. If for some reason it doesn't apply to my device, you know, you got to put your justification in there. If it does, you just put how you meet it in there. Um, it can get a little tricky, you know, because it is a lot of information, um, but we can certainly help out with that. Okay. So we're going to move on. We're already starting to get some questions about reference labs, and I know you mentioned those. So they're not really implemented yet. So what steps are the notified bodies taking to, to certify Class D devices? And maybe, Margo, if you could start with this, with your experience in that space. Yeah, and I think this is um, this has been a hot topic at the notified bodies and for Class D manufacturers, you know, since the IVDR was released. What is this going to look like? You know, how is this going to work? Um, but we've seen, you know, pretty significant delays in the designation of those EURLs. So most notified bodies have created some sort of process to certify Class D devices in lieu of the reference labs. Each notified body does have, you know, its own criteria, and it may not be, you know, exactly the same depending on who you're using, um, but Team NB has aligned, and there is a position paper that outlines the potential approaches. Um, and I think in the handouts, there should be a list of links for you, um, and so a link to that paper is in there. Um, but in general, Notified bodies are taking a risk-based approach. So 
they're going to consider your device and what the risk is to the patient for that device and what needs what additional information do they need to look at to satisfy that the device is safe and effective for its intended purpose so what factors go into that risk-based approach? Um, it's gonna be complexity of the device and novelty, right? So something that uh, is very standard technology is lower risk than something that's brand new and has never been done before. Um, current status on the market and vigilance history. So if you have very good vigilance history, you know, low complaints, things like that um, will make it lower risk. Uh, compliance history with the notified body. So if your device is certified under IVDD with your current notified body and they have already been doing batch release under IVDD, they're gonna feel more comfortable certifying that device. Um, manufacturing history. So have you made one batch? Have you made thousands of batches? Um, and are you as the legal manufacturer performing that manufacturing or are you outsourcing it? Um, it's easier for the notified body to control and audit a process that's in-house versus something that's at a subcontractor. And then availability of common specifications for the device. This is going to uh, lower the risk even further. Um, and so based on that, the notified body is going to have a process that dictates what additional information or what additional steps they need to take to certify your device in lieu of the reference lab. This might include looking at additional historic manufacturing and QC release data for a certain number of batches. It may include additional post-market surveillance review um, or witness testing on site. So going to your manufacturing site, reviewing your QC testing, uh, things like that, or um, sourcing blinded samples for testing. So it sounds and, like, right, you talk about low risk, but we're already in a category of really high risk we're, products. We're talking about, yeah, low risk in the high risk space. Yeah, okay. And, right, it, a lot of judgment, it sounds like, and you could get variation from notified body to notified body. Have you seen that or seen it even within a notified body where that, because they're looking at alternate practices that you might see some variability? Yeah, I think notified bodies try to align within themselves and they do try to align with each other too through team NB. You know, um, they want to make sure they're being consistent from manufacturer to manufacturer, especially for assays for similar intended purpose. So, um, you know, they typically have sort of a class B working group, if you want to call it that. Um, so, so the technical specialists who are certifying these higher risk devices are talking to each other, you know, getting others' opinions. It's not just a silo. So I think you will see consistency within a notified body, but you might not see consistency completely between notified bodies at this point. Okay. So Bethany, I'll switch the focus over to you. And what can, if I'm a manufacturer, what can I do to make this process go smoother? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> um, because we all are new to this, relatively speaking, um, especially in the class D space, you know, there's just a small portion of uh, class D who were those list A under the IVDD. Um, so this whole process is relatively new to everyone. Um, I think the first thing we can do is just discuss with your notified body 
um, make sure that you are establishing a process with them and you understand their expectations, especially in the absence of EU reference labs. Um, know the process that they will go to and how they will make their decisions and how you can sort of facilitate that. Um, so, you know, there is a, I guess, ban on consulting, um, but maybe Margot, you can give some indication on, you know, if you have these early discussions, can the notified body suggest things like, you know, we're going to expect this type of testing and this type of testing? Um, I guess, what what kind of freedom do they have in that? Sure, yeah, they, they may not tell you specifically what kind of testing they're looking for, but if they're going to need additional information, so for example, historic QC records uh, mm -hmm. for a certain number of batches, they should tell you that up front if you ask them. Um, you know, that shouldn't be a secret that they're gonna wanna look at additional data. And I don't think that crosses that line of consulting, um, you know, telling you what kind of testing you need to do to meet requirements is different from that. Um, they're probably not going to do that. They're just going to refer you to the common specifications uh, for that information if the common specs exist or if there's already some expert panel decisions, they may point you there. Yeah, yeah. And that was going to be my next suggestion too is look at the expert panel opinions that have been published um whether they're on your type of device or not you can kind of get an idea of the expectations of the expert panel um overall uh kind of that level of uh of data that they're looking for the level of evidence that they're looking for and um certain aspects that they take into consideration um then again if there is no if your type of device has not yet been represented by an expert panel review, um, you will need to discuss with your notified body and make sure that you're both in agreement that you will be submitting the first type of your device um, and how the expert panel process will sort of be, will, will fit into your submission, um, both in terms of timelines, in terms of the information that you have to submit, um, remember that the expert panel only receives the performance evaluation report um, so depending on your internal processes if you have a separate uh, analytical performance report scientific validity report clinical performance report and then you've got a separate per that kind of refers out and sums all together uh, you're going to want to make sure that those are at least included um, the the individual reports are at least included as appendices or attachments to your PER so that the expert panel can receive the entire thing as a whole. Um, so those are some considerations to make. Um, and I think that that will help manufacturers understand the process a little bit better and also have a closer, smoother relationship with the notified body. Yeah, and just one thing I'll add to that is it is the notified body's responsibility to say whether it's first or type and they need to submit it to expert panel, but they should have that discussion with you if it's going to be submitted. Um, and you can definitely do your homework ahead of time, look at the requirements in the MVCG guidance, look at the expert opinions that have been issued, so you kind of know what you're getting yourself into. 
So I want to take a step back and, and just, we talked, we touched on common specifications, but maybe Lindsay, if you could help me understand what's the status of those and the reference labs. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Like you said, I think Bethany um, went over some of the common specifications um, a little earlier, um, but more specifically, we had our first common specifications um, published in July of 2022. Um, we were all very excited. <laughs> I'm sure everyone else was as well. Um, and those included HIV, um, HTLV, uh, hepatitis B, C, and D, and several other infectious diseases and blood grouping. Um, they also included general um, common specifications that apply across all of those devices. Um, as we stated earlier, there are more specifications in draft. These include hepatitis E um, and plasmodium and toxoplasma. Um, when speaking specifically on the transitional provisions, um, those were outlined for common specifications and give manufacturers until July 25th, 2024 to comply with the common specifications. Um, however, notified bodies are going to be expecting compliance with the common specifications for Class D devices. So in this case, um, if not all of the common specifications have been met, uh, you as a manufacturer should really be prepared to justify why um, a, a specification has not been met and why there is no impact to patient safety. Um, I think, Bethany, maybe you're going to talk a little bit more about the EU reference labs. Yeah, and just to add on to that, uh, meeting the common specifications, um, you know, if you're still developing your product, if you're still conducting those analytical performance, clinical performance tests, make sure you do pay close attention to the common specifications because they are going to um, give you guidelines and requirements to meet in terms of met the methodology of those tests. Um, you know, making sure you have the right sample size, et cetera, you have the right acceptance criteria, all of that. Um, so that's not just a box to check after all of your testing is done. You want to make sure that you're visiting those specifications early on so you're designing the appropriate test as well. Yeah, and, um, and if you're waiting for one of those uh, that's going to be published that's currently in draft but we haven't seen drafts yet. Um, so for example, hepatitis E, you can bet that the hepatitis E requirements are going to be similar to the hep B and C and D requirements. So you know, if you're designing a hepatitis E assay, look at those, you know, be prepared for something similar to come for yours. Um, and definitely look at like the general requirements because those are going to be for all class Ds that have a common spec. Yeah. And again, if it's something that doesn't apply um, to your device, don't just leave it out. Um, make sure you include a justification of why it doesn't apply. The notified body will be looking for that as well. Yeah, good advice um, in any regulatory submission. <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of the reference labs and the status on the reference labs, um, so we're in kind of hopefully an exciting time right now. Um, so they, the labs were to submit their interest. So any labs who were applying to be EU reference labs were to submit their interest to the competent authorities by January of this year. So January, 2023, and eight applications were put, put forward. Um, so these applications have been undergoing assessment and that should be complete by Q3 of this year. 
So that means that we could potentially see reference labs assigned in the next few months. Um, and we also know that out of these eight applications, um, all IVD categories have been covered by these applications, except for hemorrhagic fever and BSL level four viruses. Um, Which so, isn't shocking because they're hard yeah. to handle. Yeah, yeah. So we're kind of keeping our fingers crossed, holding our breaths, hoping that this comes out in the next few months. <laughs> I and then ready to scramble after that. <laughs> yeah, but it's not the end of the third quarter yet. So. It's not the end. I, I want to take us back to an audience question around reference labs. Um, so the question is, are these reference labs, are they going to be staffed to turn around the results in a timely manner? And wouldn't this cause a delay in possibly getting a device out to market to patients? Yeah, so um, there are requirements. There's uh, an MDCG guidance on verification of batches for by this process by URL. So in that document, there is a time limit that you know you have. Um, I think it's 30 days from when the sample is received at the reference lab until if you don't hear anything from the notified body, you can put your product on the market. So. Um, yes, this is a big change for devices that are currently self-certified under IVDD. It is uh, something you're going to have to learn how to navigate. Um, and it's going to be similar to how it was done under IVDD. So if you have a list aid device, you know, it, it's very similar to that. You might see a little bit more time for release with the EU reference labs than you're seeing currently. Um, but there is a time limit. It's not. It can't be forever. Um, and if you have devices that have um, some interesting stability requirements, so the one that comes to mind for me is like red cells for blood grouping. So if you're making reagent red cells and you're like 30 days for release, my expiration date is 60 days. Um, the notified body is prepared to manage that, and there will be some some differences for release of products like that, but majority of products, it'll be about 30 days turnaround time. Um, so you do have to build that into your processes. Ouch. <laughs> yeah, it takes some getting used to, um, but that's where, where it's heading. And I think this leads to our next audience question, which is, are you aware of any conversations regarding downclassifying SARS-CoV-2 now that we are shifting from pandemic to endemic states? Um, I've heard of conversations among regulatory professionals that it's definitely needed. Um, will it happen? I, I have not heard any discussions about actual updates to the MDCG classification guidance. Um, or anything from a notified body saying that they will be downclassified. Um, but I think we all think it might be on the table. Okay. So it sounds like a good idea, but no credible evidence to support it's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Got it. And we mentioned expert opinions. Um, and so the question came, where can a manufacturer find published expert opinions? So these are published online. Um, we should put a link, I, I believe in one of the handouts we have in the show notes, there is a link to it. Um, 
you can try searching expert opinion IVDR. Maybe that will get you there, but they are there are a handful published online, like fifteen or so. Um, so you will be able to find them there. Yeah. So if you're googling it, search for performance evaluation consultation procedure PECP. That's probably the easiest way to find them. It is a little tricky sometimes in a Google search, but I do think the link is in the handout. And the the handout has been posted, so. <laughs> You should have that now. Okay, so we're talking about these reference labs expected to be designated in quarter three of this year. What's it mean if I'm a manufacturer and I'm working towards my class D certification, what does it mean for me? Yeah, so this is tricky because we don't really know. Um, very complicated. You know, the, the practical implementation of the EURLs is not going to be immediate upon designation. Um, there's a lot of things that have to happen in the background between the EU reference labs and the notified bodies. You know, contracts have to get put in place, procedures, um, you know, just general management of that relationship has to happen. Um, we don't have visibility of who the reference labs are, so none of that has happened yet. So I think there's going to be a period after labs are designated uh, before they're actually being used um, and unfortunately we don't know how long that's going to be um, but i would say it's not going to be short um, and i don't know what what the interim will look like unfortunately so should i get in the front of the line so i get to go through that first or should i wait till the end when all the chaos has settled out <laughs> Yeah, Lindsay, you want to talk about uh, what it's going to look like at the notified body after? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are definitely going to be significant bottlenecks at first, um, considering the volume of devices that have to go through these processes. Um, the labs are the same across all notified bodies. So there's, like you said, the bottleneck is there. We see it. It's it's coming down uh, down for all of us. Um, and then, of course, there are some devices that have already been placed on the market um, that didn't have to go through the EURLs um, in the first place. Um, those are going to have to be um, integrated back into the EURLs. And um, then, obviously, all of the other devices that are just going through the certification uh, pipeline. Uh, notified bodies themselves are going to have to balance that and decide how best to navigate and prioritize which devices kind of get first pass at, at the EURLs. Yeah, so get in with your notified body early. <laughs> I think that's the thing. It's always the theme. <laughs> and in terms of devices that are on the market already, um, Margot, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that it's just upon recertification. So on that annual update cycle is when you would have to be fit into the EURL. Um, oh, I'm not sure about that. Um, you know, they it will have to go in at least for batch testing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't think any notified body is going to be comfortable leaving these devices on the market for five years without any external testing if that testing is available. Um, that's, I, I, that's not going to happen. Um, you know, this is an important part of maintaining safety for 
uh, you know, the blood supply and and things like that. Um, and I don't think anybody wants to see issues with our blood supply, you know. Uh, so so it's really a critical step in the process. And I don't think it's just going to be left for five years without coming back around to those devices that are currently certified. So it is going to be a huge bottleneck. Got it. But in the interim, right, have you seen Notified Bodies requesting batch testing already? So Notified Bodies are releasing Class Ds that are certified. So they are, they're not necessarily doing batch testing with an external lab, um, but they are doing verification of manufactured product, which pretty much means you send the Notified Body your paperwork, your labeling, IFU, quality control testing, um, and the Notify body is going to review it and release that batch to the market. Um, what that looks like is going to depend on your device, the Notify body. They're going to create test plans for your device um, that have to be met for each batch release. Um, so, so you can expect that even if you're getting a certificate without EU reference labs, that batch release is still happening for every batch going onto the market. And this is also something that had been happening for those list A devices under IVDD as well. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Is there any experience with subcontracting batch release? Yeah, so there is. So current notified bodies have one lab that they use uh, for this testing under IVDD. Um, so, so there is some prior similar things happening that you can expect to continue a similar process, but it might be different depending on the reference lab. Um, but yes, there is there is some subcontracting currently on, happening under IVDD. Okay. Thank you. So this is always the big question, right? When people come to us and they ask, how long is it gonna take? How long is it gonna take me to get my class D through the notified body? <laughs> Any experiences here, timing? So it really varies between notified bodies, right? Um, notified bodies are continuously um, being uh, certified for IVDR, um, and they each have uh, their own client load in terms of IVD and Class D IVD. Um, but we do know that class Ds are going to take longer than other IVDs, than lower class IVDs. Um, so we are looking at maybe about a three to six month delay in terms or uh, relative to other IVDs that you're going to be putting through just because of um, the extra scrutiny that it gets. But again, it completely depends on the notified body, on the date that you get it in there. Um, there are so many variables going on right now. So if I were a project manager and I were going to do a new class D, how long should I leave in my timeline for the whole process? <laughs> Who from, you're talking from contract submission? or from submission of technical documents? Yeah, from the submission to the certification. Oof, um, if you're being safe about it, 18 months. 
Okay. And that would be a safe number. It, we also had one of our participants jump in and say 12 to 14 months is their experience. <laughs> so I love it That's when the audience participates. <laughs> yeah, and it, it does depend on how you respond to the notified body, right? So your technical review is gonna go through these rounds of questions or deficiencies with your notified body. And the faster you respond to those, the faster your review is gonna get done. Um, so we've seen, you know, clients hold these things for three or four months, right? And so that's just gonna delay your review further. So the more prepared you are to respond to the notified body and putting resources behind that will speed things along for you. Um, and again, as we get closer to deadlines, right? May, 2025 is looming. If we're looking at a 12 to 18 month review, um, the closer we get to that date, the longer things are gonna take because the more work that there's gonna be. So I know I feel like a broken record, but get your applications in, get your files in uh, as soon as you can. Okay, great feedback. Good to know. Um, do you see any future changes aligned with FDA's CSV applying to this type of device? I don't know, mate. It's it's hard to say whether you know FDA requirements are going to impact EU requirements. The two are are pretty separate uh, right now, and um, so I'm not sure. Nancy, do you have an opinion on that? I, like you <laughs> I was going to throw it question. Uh, I'm going to yeah. throw it back on the moderator. Yeah, I feel like there's a little more harmonization on the device side than on the diagnostic side, that we're almost divergent in that space, more so than converging on a single, um, you know, approach. So I'm going to say no, not at this time, but it's a great goal to shoot for, because <laughs> I love harmonization. It makes life a lot easier. You know, and that's really where, like, common specs and getting standards in place right, can drive some of that alignment because then it starts to be recognized and you can start to leverage things across, across, you know, different areas. Okay. So let's switch a little bit. We're going to talk about PERs, performance evaluation reports. And I know that's near and dear to some of you. What's the difference in PER when there's no common specification? Yeah, so um, the main difference is that devices without a common spec are subject to the expert panel, right? The performance evaluation consultation procedure. Um, and I think Bethany did touch on this earlier. So when you have a first of type device, um, and that means you know, a device with a unique intended purpose that has not been certified before by any notified body, it has to go through this PECP process. Um, once that type has been reviewed by the expert panel, then the notified bodies have to use that opinion issued for any other device of that type that comes through. So the PECP is going to be reviewing just the performance evaluation report and no other documents. So that document has to be all containing for the information, right? You can't be referencing out to analytical studies that were done. 
you know, other protocols, other reports, it needs to kind of all be in one document. Um, and then if you have a device that's in this category, look at the expert opinion on it, if it exists, and make sure that whatever they're saying, um, you know, positives or negatives, if you can fit that into your report, that will help your case. Um, and then, you know, the notified body looking at it can kind of check that box like, yes, you know, consistent with the opinion, no issues. Um, yeah, and a lot of the expert opinions, um, even on different IVDs for um, different analytes, will have kind of a list of the same general recommendations for it. Um, so that is a good guide to be like, all right, am I checking off the box for this recommendation and this one and this one? Am I doing things that are clearly on the expert panel's checklist, <laughs> right? Am I making sure I am addressing what they're going to be looking for? We're getting close to the end of our session, so I just want to go around to the panel and ask, what advice would you give to a Class D manufacturer? So this is your, your chance to, to share your wisdom and what one thing should they be looking out for, or five things, whichever you want to do. <laughs> and Lindsay, you're in my top corner on my screen, so I'll start with you. Perfect. Yes, I was thinking about this and I was trying to think of something unique. Um, I think one of the things that we have noticed with some of um, some of the documentation that we worked on um, is really looking at if you have a Class D IVD, it's likely that you have a treasure trove of data. Um, so really looking at that data and putting it in the correct bucket. Um, I know sometimes, you know, internal, um, like, way you name an internal report may not necessarily align to um, the performance characteristics that are outlined um, in the GSPR. So really kind of looking at the data that you have and how it can be utilized and knowing that sometimes it, it might not fit and you have to go out and, and you know, generate more, more data for your device. Um, but that was, that was something that kind of, came to mind as I was thinking about this over the past couple of weeks. Great, thank you. Bethany? I'm gonna stay on the same theme of data and <laughs> reiterate, read the common specifications early, early on in your development process, um, just to make sure you're setting yourself up for success and there's nothing that you have to remediate down the road um, because it wasn't addressed at the beginning. And Marco? I'm going to be completely unoriginal because got to say it, get a notify body now, submit your technical documentations last year, um, you know, really get started on this process. If you are listening to me say that and thinking like, gosh, I don't even have anything that we need. Well, let's have a discussion about it. Um, you know, reach out for support because this is a long process. It's a lot of work and timelines are only going to get worse. Um, and so it's really important that you establish that relationship with your notified body, work with them. They are, you know, they can't consult, but they will help you through this if you have that, a contract with them in place. Um, so that's my advice is just 
get on it even if you're you know not completely done with your technical documentations at least get your application logged with the notified body so if i'm the regulatory person and i'm feeling the pressure that you know these dates are coming closer that you know it's like objects in the mirror they're closer than they appear um but my senior leadership is like i don't want to spend the money yet to do this like how do you convince your leadership that yeah now is the time to act and it, it is time to move a really good question um i think you know you need to put together the business case right that's always going to be the words that are used um, and in this case the business case is that if you don't your device is not going to be on the market in may of 2025 um you know I know that we see these transition deadlines keep getting extended, and so it's nice to be like hopeful that it'll happen again. Um, but the reality of the situation is that May of 2025 is coming, and it doesn't look like anything's going to get extended. Um, so get use that as leverage. Um, the other thing is that IVDR certification can be, you know, a boost for your marketing efforts, right? So it's you can say this is IVDR certified and you know we know that it's safe and effective and that it works because of that right you kind of get that notified body stamp on it um so so you can kind of use that approach as well you know money always speaks volumes to the people making the decisions um and yeah i mean i think showing them videos like this showing them that everybody's screaming from the top of their lungs that this is something that needs to happen um, is helpful. Yeah, and the earlier you get it in, like we have said before, you know, the faster it's going to be able to go through. So you're not getting it in at the last minute when everyone else is getting it in at the last minute. The earlier you get it in, the higher on the list you'll likely be for the EU reference labs. So that's another delay you can avoid. Um, so it is that upfront investment to avoid a lot of heartburn later on. Excellent. Okay. I'm going to turn it back over to Steve to wrap us up today. Thank you, panelists. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you for joining RQM Plus Live today, everyone. Uh, we appreciate you being here and thank you for your questions. Uh, I also want to thank all of our panelists, especially our RQM Plus Live first timers, Margot and Lindsay. Thanks. Uh, a follow-up email with today's recording and a summary of the questions covered will be sent by tomorrow. Uh, we'll also be publishing the show to the RQM Plus Device Advice podcast. So if you aren't subscribed to that, you can check it out at the link I shared in the webinar chat earlier or just search RQM Plus Device Advice um, in your podcast platform of choice. We should be there. As far as what's next, uh, the events in our industry definitely start picking up when September arrives and RQM Plus is no exception. Uh, we have nothing specific to announce today, but uh, events are coming. We're planning multiple live shows next month and also a webinar. Uh, they'll be announced soon. We're also gearing up for a slew of in-person events in October, uh, RAPS Convergence in Montreal, a European Device and Diagnostic Postmarket Proactive Surveillance and Vigilance Conference in Brussels. Boy, that's a long name. Uh, and the MedTech Conference in Anaheim, California. Those are the big ones we are speaking and sponsoring at all of those. Um, so please come say hello if you're at any of those events. And finally, we hope you'll follow RQM Plus on LinkedIn. If you spend any time there, we touch on industry news, share our upcoming events and some of our newer 
MedTech Voices and Excellent Spotlight video series. Uh, Bethany was just featured on one of those um, a couple weeks ago. So for all of that and more, please follow us on LinkedIn and subscribe to our Device Advice podcast. So that's all for today. Thanks for being here, and we hope to see you next month. Bye, everybody.